0: You can survive for up to eight days after being impaled. What does being impaled consist of, you ask? Perhaps I would like to try it in my free time. Well, we have a 17th century eyewitness account here from Egypt. They lay the malefactor upon his belly with his hands tied behind his back. Then they slit up his fundament with a razor and throw into it a handful of paste that they have in readiness, which immediately stops the blood. After that, they thrust up into his body a very long stake, as big as a man's arm, sharp at the point and tapered, which they grease a little before. When they have driven it in with a mallet till it comes out at his breast or at his head or shoulders, they lift him up and plant this stake very straight in the ground upon which they leave him so exposed. Vlad the Third of Wallachia love to impale people. He eats a hearty breakfast beneath a canopy of the impaled, many of them still alive, moaning and writhing in agony. When merchants arrive from Saxony, he impales them. 600 visitors from Wurzland, impaled. 55 Hungarian and Saxon ambassadors come to Wallachia, perhaps to discuss all this impalement, and he keeps them waiting for five weeks without an audience, during which time he prepares 55 steaks for their impalement in clear view of their chambers, just to drive them crazy. He sent one of his captains to the village of Zending, to burn it but the captain couldn't bring himself to do it, so Vlad had him impaled. <coughs> he didn't like a priest's sermon, impaled. <coughs> he invited 500 of his principal vassals and noblemen to a banquet, and afterwards he asked them how many rulers Valachia had had. None of them knew the right answers, so he had them all impaled. <coughs> he saw a man working in a short shirt. He asked the man if he had a wife. The man said yes, he had the wife impaled. <coughs> He impaled 25,000 people in Vulgary alone. He impaled mothers and their babies, still nursing at their breast, on the same stake. He impaled Christians and Jews sideways so that they twitched and whimpered in confusion for days. When a nobleman recoiled from the stench of all the impaled people everywhere, he had him impaled, but on a stake higher than all the others so that the smell wouldn't bother him. All of that is total and complete BS. Maybe it's because there's a different inspiration for Count Dracula in Bram Stoker's book. Maybe it's Countess Elizabeth Bathory of Hungary, a famous serial killer who had over 600 victims whose blood she bathed in each day in order to maintain her eternal youth. No, that's BS too. The reason we think these things are true is because several academics have made their living spreading these lies. In particular, Boston College professors Raymond McNally and Radu Florescu have made a career out of writing about Dracula's inspirations, usually getting them wrong. And they're not alone. A lot of people have gotten in on the Count Dracula historical misinformation project, which is so widespread that Elizabeth Miller, a professor at Memorial University of Newfoundland, practically makes a career out of correcting the record. Stoker's notes for writing Dracula are extensive, meticulous, and very, very clear. He lists the books he consulted and writes down the page numbers he read. One of these was Sabine Gould's The Book of Werewolves, which includes a very short section on Countess Bathory. From this evidence... Stoker owns a book that mentions Elizabeth Bathory, Raymond McNally decided that she must have been an inspiration and wrote a book about her called Dracula Was a Woman. Sabine Gould's Book of Werewolves talks about Albertus Pericophicus, Pierre Vidal, Michel Verdon, the Hermit of Saint-Bonnet, the Gandion family. It devotes an entire chapter to Jean Grenier, three chapters to Guy de Duval, and one chapter to the beggar Svatek. But out of all these famous killers and accused werewolves, McNally only links Elizabeth Bathory to Stoker's book. Even though the Bathory story receives about a page and a half of mention in the book and her last name never appears, she's merely called Elizabeth blank. No matter how much McNally wished it otherwise, Elizabeth Bathory has zero to do with Dracula. The non-inspiration of Vlad Third of Valachia can be dispensed with almost as easily. Originally, Stoker's villain was from Styria, like Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, or Malarca, or Mercalla, whatever she was going with by the time. And Stoker planned to call him Count Vampire. But in 1890, he took a three-week summer vacation at the seaside town of Whitby, where the ship Demeter will wash ashore with all its sailors murdered in the book, Dracula. There, Stoker did his vampire research and worked on the outline for Dracula, and one of the books he borrowed for research from the Whitby Public Library was called An Account of the Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia, by William Wilkinson, and Stoker copied out several key passages, including one footnote, which reads, Dracula in the Valachian language means devil. The Valachians were, at that time, as they are at present, used to giving this as a surname to any person who rendered himself conspicuous either by courage, cruel actions, or cunning. He wrote next to it, Dracula in Valachian means devil which it doesn't, it actually means dragon, but there you go. There is absolutely no mention of Vlad III in Stoker's notes. But McNally and Florescu point out that there had to be a connection because Vlad loved to impale people on giant wooden stakes and Dracula could only be killed by a giant wooden stake. For the love of all that's holy, how on earth do you get from a cruel sadist impaling his victims on 10-foot-long wooden poles to driving a handheld wooden stake through the heart of a vampire to kill it? That doesn't make any sense. Besides that, staking was a well-known punishment already for the truly evil, whether it was women who killed their children in Eastern Europe or suicides, whom English law sought to eradicate so that their corpses were impaled through the chest with ash stakes and buried at crossroads. Also, some notorious murderers, like John Williams, immortalized in Thomas De Quincey's 1827 essay on murder considered as one of the fine arts, were buried in unmarked graves and had stakes driven through their hearts. And let's not forget a vast body of historical record and folklore from Romania, Russia, and Hungary, in which vampires were staked to the ground by a wooden stake driven through their chests before being decapitated, decoronated, or burned. Any of this is much more likely to have provided inspiration for Stoker's Dracula having a wooden stake through the chest allergy than a minor Valachian ruler's penchant for impaling his victims on angry maypoles. How would Bram Stoker have even known about Vlad III anyways? Several rulers named Dracul or Dracula are mentioned in Wilkinson's book, but there isn't much about Vlad III in there. and Mitnalli write that Stoker dined with a guy named Armininius Vambury, a Hungarian Turkologist and traveler, and this is true, they did have dinner. They also say that after the dinner, Stoker wrote to him asking for more information on this intriguing character he mentioned during their meal, Vlad Dracul. This is not true. No correspondence between Stoker and Vanbury has ever been found. Stoker met Van Bury twice and wrote about both meetings in his memoirs and never mentions vampires, Vlad, or Transylvania. McNally and Florescu also say that a 1488 pamphlet at the British Museum describes Vlad as a vampire hungry for his people's blood and features a gross woodcut of him having brunch beneath the canopy of impaled people. Stoker probably did research at the British Museum, citing his notes about 30 books and articles he may have found there, but there's no reason to assume he saw the pamphlet. It's not listed. Yes, Stoker and this pamphlet were in the same building together, but no, that doesn't mean one inspired the other. So, let's be very clear. Vlad III of Valachia, Vlad the Impaler, Vlad Dracula, has Absolutely, positively, nothing to do with Bram Stoker's Dracula. Countess Elizabeth Bathory of Hungary has nothing to do with Bram Stoker's Dracula. But we're going to talk about them today in Saturday School because their lives, how they're remembered, and what they mean are way more interesting than anything in Bram Stoker's book. Well, well, here we are. I want to congratulate you for being on time. It is now. 706. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to think about why you are. ponder the error of your way. not talk, it will not move, you will not sleep. I'm Grady Hendrix, and you're in Saturday School. Vlad Dracula, Vlad III ruled Wallachia, which is... doesn't exist anymore. These days it's part of Romania, just south of what used to be Transylvania, but is now also Romania. It's a region that had one constant fact for 400 years. War with the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Turks were Muslim, the people of Central Europe were Christian, and for 400 years they killed each other. European versus Arab, East versus West, Christian versus Muslim. These wars ripped the region apart unleashed waves of refugees, started epidemics and plagues, and shaped regional politics for centuries. Vlad's dad, Vlad II, ruled Wallachia from 1436 to about 1447 and was given the badass name Vlad Dracul, or Vlad the Dragon, by the Holy Roman Emperor because he killed a bunch of Ottoman Turks. In the 58 years between the death of Vlad Dracul's dad in 1418 and his son, Vlad III, in 1476, Valacio is ruled by 11 different people, each dynasty betraying the other, assassinating them, exchanging hostages, selling out to the Ottomans, selling out to the Holy Roman Empire, one after the other in turn. Basically, it was Game of Thrones except anti-Islamic and very Romanian. Vlad II tried to broker a peace with the Turks by giving them his sons, Vlad III and Radu the Handsome, as hostages. His boys grew up in the Ottoman court, where Vlad spent his time developing a pathological hatred of the Ottoman Turks, and Radu literally slept with the enemy, taken as a lover a senior official in the court. Then Dad got assassinated by his cousin, Vladislav II, who wanted the throne, and to really make his point, he blinded Vlad II's oldest son, Merceau, with hot pokers and buried him alive. <laughs> Next in line for the throne, Vlad III, a sneaky little prick. Vlad III waited until Vladislav II joined a massive crusade against the Turks, then led his own army of Ottoman Turks to sneak back into Wallachia and take over his homeland. But when Vladislav II returned from his crusade at the head of a tattered but war-hardened army, Vlad III fled back to the Turks crying like a little baby. For the next eight years, the future Vlad the Impaler hid with various Moldavian and Hungarian royal families running from one to the other whenever his protector got assassinated by a rival. Finally, one of Vladislav II's former allies switched sides, and Vlad III returned to Wallachia, where he murdered Vladislav II in totally badass one-on-one combat, like a boss. Then he massacred all the nobles who'd helped murder his father and older brother, and he also killed a whole bunch of Saxon merchants just to teach them a lesson. And... It was during this four-year period that he required his reputation for total and complete ruthlessness. Still enjoying the protection of the Ottoman Turkish Empire, about four years after retaking Wallachia, Vlad decided to stop paying the Ottomans tribute and began attacking Turks, because why not bite the hand that fed him? True to form, this was not Vlad III being brave, but instead, because the great Turkish sultan Mehmed II was currently distracted by his hobby of totally destroying the Byzantine Empire, this seemed to be a cue for Vlad III to get a little of his own back. However, the 21-year-old Sultan Mehmed II took the city of Constantinople, renamed it Istanbul, inspired a clash song, mopped up the remainders of the Byzantine Empire, and turned his 150,000-man army on Wallachia, teamed up with Radu, the handsome Vlad's soldier brother, and named him king. Vlad III had 30,000 men under his command, which isn't bad, uh, but it's also not 150,000 men. So, as Sultan Mehmed II invaded Wallachia, Vlad III conducted ambushes, harassing the Sultan with night attacks, and when that didn't even slow down the Turks, he retreated leaving sort of a burned earth in his wake. Sultan Mehmed thought he'd seen everything. I mean, this 21-year-old had been through a lot of war. He'd besieged Constantinople. He'd been around. But then he entered the capital, Valachia, as he pursued Vlad. The Sultan's army entered into the area of the Impalements, which was 17 stads long and 7 stads wide. There were large stakes there on which, as it was said, about 20,000 men. Women and children had been spitted. Quite a sight for the Turks and the Sultan himself. The Turks were dumbfounded when they saw the multitude of men on the stakes. There were infants too, affixed to their mothers on the stakes, and birds had made their nests in their entrails. Just for a reference, a stad is a unit of Roman measurement. It's about 606 feet wide, so this forest of impaled people is two miles long and a little under a mile wide. The Sultan Mehmed, was seized with amazement and said that it was not possible to deprive of his country a man who had done such great deeds, who had such a diabolical understanding of how to govern his realm and its people, and he said that a man who had done such things was worth much. This is around the time they started to call him Vlad the Impaler. Vlad won two battles against his brother, Radu the Handsome, but everyone knew his days were numbered. He couldn't stand against the Ottoman army. It had 150,000 men and could raise plenty more. Vlad retreated across the Carpathian Mountains, seeking assistance from Matthias Corvinus. Instead, Corvinus had Vlad arrested and placed under house arrest in a tiny town just north of Budapest as a favor to the sultan. Vlad would stay under house arrest for 13 years. Confined to Matthias Corvinus's summer palace, Vlad spent his exile doing nothing. No correspondence survives, no diaries, barely any mention of him in court papers. But after being out of action for over a decade, he converted to Roman Catholicism, as asked, and agreed to become Corvinus's sock puppet on the Wallachian throne. By now, Corvinus had turned against the Ottomans, and Vlad joined him in the fight, but died less than four months later, slaughtered by yet another claimant to the Wallachian throne. Barely two years after coming out of exile, his body was hacked into pieces and his head was preserved and sent to Sultan Mehmed as proof of his death. When his tomb was finally opened in 1933, no one could find Vlad III's body. They found it full of horse bones instead. In real life, Vlad III was a hard-fighting rebel caught between opposing forces scheming for the throne of a country that no longer even exists. He had three reigns, once for a month, once for six years, and then for just under a month. He spent more time as a hostage than he did as a king. So where do we get these legends of Vlad the Impaler? The legend that when ambassadors from Italy refused to remove their hats in his presence because it was their custom, he had their hats nailed to their heads because, hey, he didn't want to break their custom. The legend that he roasted gypsies alive and made their families eat their flesh. The legend that he ground people alive between grindstones. That he fed roasted babies to their mothers and roasted women's breasts and fed them to their husbands. That he prepared a feast for all the beggars in the land, then had the sheds in which they eat locked and burned them to death. How did we get from a minor ruler of a disputed throne to the shish kebab king and grill master extraordinaire from hell? Propaganda. The printing press was relatively new, but everyone loved the brand new super lurid true crime pamphlets that were coming out of them. It was in the best interest of the Ottomans and all the various 9 billion claimants to the Valachian throne that Vlad III be depicted as a terrible monster. And let's face it, those 20,000 people didn't just impale themselves. The True Crime Vlad III pamphlets were so popular that plenty of examples survive, and one of them is in the British Museum and is supposed to be the one Stoker saw. They're full of stories about Vlad the Impaler, and almost every single one of them is a lie. Now, towards the end of Vlad's life, he fought against the Ottomans by the side of Stephen Bathory in that last final hurrah. Bathory was a Hungarian hero, a ferocious fighter and member of the rich and powerful Bathory family. And in 1560, about a century later, one of Stephen Bathory's distant cousins would be the other fake inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Elizabeth Bathory, the Blood Countess. The Guinness Book of World Records hails her as the most prolific female serial killer of all time, with over 600 victims. She punished her servants by smearing them with honey and throwing them to the ants, sewing their mouths shut, or burning them with iron rods. She also slaughtered them and bathed in their blood to stay eternally young. After her arrest and following the testimony of 300 witnesses, four of her servants were executed as co-conspirators, and Elizabeth herself was bricked up alive in her own castle. But wait, this is actually misogynistic propaganda. In reality, Elizabeth Bathory was the victim of a male conspiracy to deprive her of her lands and her money because after the death of her husband, Francis, the patriarchy could not handle a powerful widow. Her mere existence posed a threat to the men of Hungary. So they came up with this lurid story, had her arrested on trumped-up charges, tortured confessions out of her four servants, then avoided going to trial, instead declaring her insane and had her in prison for the rest of her life. Elizabeth Bathory, R-I-P, another victim of the patriarchy that fears and loathes powerful women. Actually, that's not true either. Elizabeth Bathory wasn't some kind of proto-vampire bathing in virgin's blood for eternal life, nor was she a victim of a sexist conspiracy to seize her land and her wealth. Born into Hungary's a super wealthy, ultra-powerful Bathory family, Lizzie B. married Francis Nodicy when she was 15 years old. How powerful were the Bathories? Francis changed his last name to Bathory rather than Elizabeth changing her last name to his. By all accounts, the two had a loving marriage and five children, three of whom survived into adulthood, which wasn't too bad for 16th century Hungary, but this is where the rumors begin. Because it took Francis and Liz 10 years to have their first kid, historians, who are a bunch of gossipy church ladies sometimes, began to whisper, Was Francis afraid of his wife? Was Elizabeth already a lesbian sadist? Actually, because Francis spent 19 of their 29 years off fighting the Turks, they didn't have much time to bone down. Francis died in 1604, and that's when Liz's life took a turn. If you think Liz Bathory was the victim of a sexist conspiracy, here are your three possible motives for the patriarchy to take her down. One, Francis had made an enormous loan to King Matthias II and Liz started demanding he repay, therefore the crown wanted her sideline so that the king could default on his loan. Two, the powers that be just couldn't handle a woman in charge of such a vast network of fortresses, castles, and farms. A powerful woman challenged the patriarchy and had to be destroyed. 3. The Crown wanted to defame the powerful Bathory family by tarring them with the brush of insanity in yet another complicated power play in 16th century Hungary's Game of Thrones. Three motives, and surely out of those three, at least one of them isn't totally and completely full of BS. Nope, they all are. Liz had already been in control of her husband's vast estates for 19 years of their marriage while he was away fighting the Ottomans. Even after he died, powerful widows were an accepted part of Hungary's social fabric. And before Francis's death, Liz had pretty much toed the line in terms of public and legal conventions. There was no reason to think that she wasn't just another one of Hungary's powerful law-abiding widows. Even if she wasn't, the vast land she supposedly controlled weren't so vast. Except for her castle, yes, and its orchards and farms, the vast Bathory's holdings hadn't gone to Liz at all, but to her son and actually to his tutor because he was underage. So going after Liz got you exactly one castle. As for the loan, even after Lizzie's death, her son kept trying to get it repaid, so that probably wasn't the motive either. As for her arrest as a bit of political theater, the Crown did everything in its power to avoid a public trial, so what's the point of a gesture when no one can see you make it? The easiest way for the crown to have kneecapped the Bathory's, grabbed their wealth, canceled their debt, and made a power move would be to charge Elizabeth Bathory with treason. Why fabricate a bunch of charges of murder and torture and all this craziness when they could have gotten far more mileage out of a single charge of treason that would shut down the entire Bathory family and transfer their vast wealth directly to the Hungarian crown? So this conspiracy? It's B.S., based on poor translations, basic misunderstandings of Hungarian law in the early modern period, and bad-faith readings of the historical record. But it is undeniable that Francis's death was the beginning of the end for Liz. Lizzie Bathory had always marched to the beat of her own drum, namely a drum made of human skin stretched across the skull of a giant and pounded by an insane lunatic from a black metal band. She'd always loved to torture her servants. Francis forbade punishments that ended in death while he was alive since servants were expensive and had to be trained. But he did teach her a few neato party games like rolling up pieces of oiled paper, inserting them between a servant's toes, and lighting them on fire. When a servant girl stole a coin, Liz held it in the fire until it was red hot, then pressed it to the girl's palm, just like that creepy Nazi in Raiders of the Lost Ark. When one servant stole a potato biscuit, she heated the biscuit until it was almost on fire and then stuffed it into the girl's mouth and made her swallow it. Another maid stole a pear, so Liz had her stripped, covered in honey, and tied to a tree to be bitten by insects. But before you go tarring Liz Bathory with the crazy brush, this was 100% normal in 17th century Hungary. The country had a weak central government, and even the Habsburg Empire was stretched pretty thin, so a lot of Hungary was left to its own devices. On remote estates, the lord or lady of the manor were the ultimate legal authority and all those hot coins, burning biscuits, and insect biting tortures were well within the acceptable boundaries of the day. Then, Francis died. The first sign that something was a little bit off was that Liz didn't immediately commit to a lifetime of wearing black and a year of isolation, but spent millions on an entirely new wardrobe of red outfits for herself and her retinue of servants. Red being the peasant's color for mourning and protection from the supernatural. And she presented herself at court a month after Francis's death, one of her rare appearances there. She also began torturing her servants to death. At first, she told everyone they died of disease, and that was actually pretty reasonable. With all the coming and going and toing and froing with the Ottomans and the Christians and the wars and the refugees, Hungary hosted epidemics more often than the rest of Europe. But after a while, even church officials began to ask to see the bodies before performing funerals, uh, just to make sure they're really sick dead bodies. Like an underage kid getting carted at the liquor store. Liz bolted in a panic. She started tossing bodies everywhere. She had dead servants dumped by the side of the road. She had them thrown into barns. Once, a body was buried so haphazardly that while a mother visited her daughter at Castle Chest, a dog strolled through the courtyard carrying a human hand in its mouth. Liz's servants were the teenage children of her serfs, and even they knew something had gone seriously awry, and pretty soon they stopped sending their kids to work at the castle because it seemed like a terrible summer job. Searching for new victims and maybe a way to make a little extra money on the side, Liz opened a gynaceum, basically a finishing school for the daughters of the lesser nobility, and the lesser nobility were people who paid taxes but owned less than 100 serfs, and they were really super eager to send their daughters to make connections and learn courtly etiquette with a great lady like Liz. Within three weeks of opening her gyneceum, every single one of these girls was dead. Killing servants wasn't illegal because they were serfs, and serfs had no legal status in Hungary. They were considered a natural resource, not a person. But lords and ladies, members of the lesser nobility, they had rights, and killing their children was a crime. Liz told their families that one of the girls had been caught stealing instead of taking responsibility. Well, like a typical millennial, she'd murdered a bunch of the other students and then killed herself. She refused to release their bodies to their families, however. Now, the lesser nobility complained to the king, and he sent Georgie Thurzo as inquisitor to investigate. And Thurzo immediately had a problem. As he started to ask questions, He found rumors, but there were a lot of rumors. He also found a letter from a guy named Pastor Panikidus, who claimed that he had seen nine female bodies dumped in the catacombs between the chapel and the castle under Liz's reign. Thurzo figured between all these rumors and this letter, he had to do something. But Francis, Liz's dead husband, he'd asked Thurzo to specifically look after Liz after his death. So, you know, he was on the horns of a Hungarian dilemma. Also, Hungary was a volatile country, and the king did not sit easily on his throne. Investigating a member of a huge noble family like the powerful Bathories could unleash a revolution in the aristocratic ranks. Moving very cautiously, Thurzo found 36 eyewitnesses, who all gave accounts seen with their own eyes of Liz torturing servants and daughters of the lesser nobility to death. Now, a lot has been made out of the fact that this was a show trial and Liz wasn't even there, but it wasn't a trial. What Liz faced from Thurzo was known as a common inquest, which was held to determine if a crime had even been committed, and if it has, was there enough evidence to go to trial. In a common inquest, serfs were allowed to testify against nobles, and the accused didn't appear and could be examined in absentia, because every single member of the nobility was an extreme flight risk. The second they smelled trouble, they could skip over the border and shack up with a relative, like Vlad III. Thurzo went to King Matthias with his 36 eyewitness accounts and then things get a little hazy. What most likely happened is the king or Thurzo went to the Bathory family and cut a deal. Historical evidence suggests that her son, Her brothers-in-law and Thurzo came to an agreement. They would prosecute four of her servants for the crime and imprison Liz for the rest of her life without ever going to trial and risking the family wealth. Conspiracy mongers shout at this point, no trial, she's been railroaded. But a trial would have been long, humiliating, expensive, and ruined the Bathory name. It could have opened the family up to all kinds of charges. And in addition, the rules for prosecuting nobility were very complicated and very tough. The king might lose the support of the other members of the nobility if Liz was found guilty at trial. It was a really tough situation. So, there was definitely a conspiracy against Liz, but it was a conspiracy of her own family to protect their name. Because the tough fact of all of this is that the charges against Elizabeth Bathory were real. When Thurzo went to Bathory's castle to arrest her, he found two corpses of young girls in the entryway. He found one girl in the middle of being tortured. He arrested Elizabeth on the spot, a violation of her rights since he didn't have the required seven members of the nobility necessary to authorize him to do so. But he probably felt comfortable bending the rules because he already knew he had the family's assurance that as long as Elizabeth didn't stand trial, he could do whatever he wanted. Once under arrest, not a single member of the nobility requested that Elizabeth receive a trial, nor did they stand up and protest that due process hadn't been followed, which means it may have been an open secret that Liz was doing some sick stuff up in that castle. King Matthias demanded a trial, but not for very long or very hard, and people think he did this to reassure the nobility that he would stand up for their rights and for due process. Eventually, the people who were tried were four of her servants. Their trial is where the bizarre claims about Elizabeth come from. Close to 300 people testified, mostly repeating rumors and hearsay. But that was okay, because the people on trial were serfs. One young girl testified she saw a book in which Elizabeth recorded the names of over 600 victims. Eventually, after some torture, the four servants confessed and said they'd done all the murders. Some people believe that the use of torture invalidates this trial and proves there was a conspiracy, but really, it reveals a drastic difference in how we think and how people in early modern Europe thought about things like truth and torture. Torture of the accused was so commonplace in trials at that time that it was rarely, if ever, even mentioned in the record of the trial. If torture made these a sham trial, then every single trial in early modern Europe was a sham trial because they all used torture. Humans were born in a state of original sin and were instinctively given to lie and prevaricate. Truth was a spontaneous outburst that must be torn against your will from your sinful body. In Hungary at the time, the injuries inflicted by torture were all ones from which the victim could heal. Torture sessions lasted about 30 minutes each, and the witness was given a day of reflection between each session. In every trial, there were three sessions. The first consisted of just a tour of the torture chamber and demonstration of the implements that would be used. A lot of people confessed at this point. A day later, the second session was one where the extremities were attacked with things like thumbscrews and iron boots. A day later, the third session would introduce much more dangerous devices like the rack, the Judas Cradle, and the choke pair, and you really wanted a skilled torturer or a parent there to administer these things. If the victim made it through all three sessions without confessing, they were assumed to be telling the truth and released. The four servants on trial didn't make it through the three sessions. The youngest got life, but was later released and disappeared into history. The other three were burned at the stake after having their fingers chopped off. As for Liz, she was confined to her castle. Usually people were confined to a monastery after something like this, but because she was confined at home, and that was something that was usually reserved for the insane, this might have been done to send a message to the public that her family and the court and the crown considered her mentally ill. Confinement also meant that Liz was legally dead so her property could be passed to her son and it allowed her husband to remain thought of as a national hero. The Bathory family didn't take a hit. A few years later, her grandson even married into a very rich, powerful family nearly as old and wealthy as his own. Her land seized, Elizabeth Bathory confined, the family protected. These all seem like the outcome of some kind of conspiracy. But please, let's not forget that the final death toll the one of which we can be reasonably certain 175 servants and children tortured to death almost immediately after Elizabeth's death Elizabeth Bathory began to appear in the same propaganda pamphlets that Vlad III did. The Counter-Reformation had just begun, a century of Catholic rebirth, pushing back against the Protestant Reformation. This would eventually go on to result in the Spanish Inquisition, religious wars that convulsed Europe and killed over 6 million people, the rise and popularity of Galileo's theories, and the adaptation of the calendar we use today. The Counter-Reformationists claimed Liz had been born Catholic and only become a bloodthirsty monster after becoming Lutheran. We have her story today in the modern age because it appeared in the Reverend Sabine Baring Gould's 1865 Book of Werewolves, the one Bram Stoker had, where she was cited as an example of a sadist. It was this entry that immortalized her as a berserk serial murderer with 650 victims who bathed in their blood to maintain her eternal beauty. There is no doubt about it. Vlad the Impaler and Elizabeth Bathory were both deeply unpleasant people. But they're not the unpleasant people we think they are. They were both minor figures in history who became famous because their names were used as propaganda after their death. Nicolae Ceausescu was the communist dictator who ruled Romania from 1967 to 1989, and he needed to find national heroes. One of them was Vlad III. He immortalized Vlad on a postage stamp in 1976 on the 500th anniversary of his death. And in 1978, he encouraged the production of The True Life of Dracula, a movie giving a Marxist reading on Vlad III's life, portraying him as a handsome, brooding, and canny strategist, while portraying the Sultan Mehmed as a decadent homosexual pervert. In the film, Saxon merchants, who are depicted as a capitalist class, are depicted as the ones who defame Vlad's name and labeled him as the Impaler. They cry out in the movie, Tell everyone, everywhere you go, that Vlad is a tyrant, a devil craving for blood, that his only pleasure is to impale innocent people. Tell them that he feasts in the shadow of the stakes and enjoys the agony. Tell them that he put fire to a house where he gathered the poor instead of giving them alms. Tell them that he slaughtered 300 traitors together with their wives and children. Describe Describe him to history as a demon, as an evil spirit. Ceausescu hero-worshipped Vlad and, and conflated the two of them, arranging an exhibit of nationalist Romanian heroes that featured both of them together. Slowly over time, rumors began to spread that Chasescu himself was a vampire. While in Venezuela, he demanded a cross be removed from his hotel room. At a lunch in his honor, he stormed out when the minister blessed the meal, yelling at and kicking his chief advisor in public for not warning him that this blessing was going to occur. This was probably because as a staunch communist, he was a total atheist, but it didn't help the cause of I am not a vampire. Eventually, on Christmas Day 1989, eighty-nine, Chaskeşcu and his wife were given an hour-long trial, then sentenced to death, for genocide. They were both shot immediately after their trial. But, like a vampire, Ceausescu did have an obsession with blood. Like a vampire, he was also associated With a plague. When Ceausescu came into office, he preached that the special character of the Romanian genetic pool was endangered by the falling birth rate of pure Romanians and the rising birth rate of dirty ethnic minorities. He wanted to create pure-blooded Romanian people because he believed they would be as powerful as the ancient Romans. So, in 1965, he made raising the country's population from 19 million to 30 million by the year 2000 a priority. Childbirth became a patriotic duty. Abortion was banned for women under 45 with fewer than five children. Monthly pregnancy tests were required for women under 30 who wanted free medical care. And special taxes were imposed on couples who remained childless after two years of marriage. Contraception became outlawed in 1985. And it worked. By 1977, the country's population was 23 million, up 4 million people. But the economic strain of having all these children led to tens and thousands of them being abandoned by their families who couldn't afford to raise them. They became dumped into state orphanages. These orphanages were also underfunded, so without milk or vitamins or proper nutrition and food for the kids, they began to rely on giving these malnourished children blood transfusions, thinking it would boost their immune systems. This led to an AIDS epidemic, which turned into a deeply serious crisis when Ceausescu denied anyone in Romania even had AIDS because it was, as he said, a foreign disease. By 2001, 11 years after Ceaușescu's death, 9,000 Romanian children were living with HIV. Most of them were between 9 and 13 years old. That is half the total number of pediatric AIDS cases in all of Europe at that time. They are victims of a plague caused by Ceaușescu's obsession with blood. After Ceaușescu's death, the revolutionary politician Jelu Voican went to the dictator's apartments. There. He strung them all over with garlic. Ceausescu hadn't gotten a proper burial after all, and everyone in Romania knew what happened to the unquiet dead. The ones who didn't get last rites. The ones who went to their graves as blasphemers and didn't believe in God. The ones who came with the plagues. The ones who were obsessed with blood. In a way, you get their point.